morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as the ancient of days, and we celebrate the fact that you are for us, and because you are for us, no one can be against us. We thank you and praise you for your sovereign love, which we are able to read about and celebrate throughout your word, and we are eager now to open your word and, and see magnificent things there. We pray, Father, that as we do so, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us. We're grateful for the fact that he dwells inside of us and assists us, opens our eyes to help us understand your word. We pray that he would do that. And that as we study the word, we would be moved to not fear our enemies, but rather to fear you rightly and to love your son above all things. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6. In Genesis 3.15, we've, we've noted several times recently that God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. I'll put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, between your seed and her seed. From Genesis 3 on, not only has the devil set himself against the people of God, but all those who belong to the domain of darkness set themselves against the people of God. So, all of Egypt against Jacob's family. All of the Canaanite nations against Israel. All of the world against the church of Jesus Christ. And it's no wonder that God began very early in His history with us saying the words, fear not. Fear not. Over and over from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we read, we read those words, fear not, have no fear. Why should we have no fear? It's because Genesis 3.15 was not intended to be a judgment upon God's people, but it's a judgment upon the serpent. It's, it's through the enmity that God said He would put between the seeds, through the serpent's hatred for God's people, that the devil's undoing would come. So God says, have no fear. He says it over and over, and usually... There are words that follow those three words. Have no fear, for I am with you. God causes the work of His enemy to backfire on Him. And so so frequently we find that in the direst of situations, when things couldn't possibly look any more bleak for God's people, they have only to watch as God fights for them. Now, if ever there was a seed of the serpent, it was Haman the Agagite in the book of Esther. And if ever there was a dark night in the history of of God's people, it was there in Persia when they were 
not merely sold into slavery and not merely sent off into exile, but rather by the scheming of Haman, every last one of them had been sentenced to execution. But the people of God there in that situation, they should have heard echoes from the past, fear not for I am with you. Fear not for I am with you. And and that's what we should hear in this narrative that we take up this morning as the invisible and silent Almighty fights for His people, causing all of Haman's work to backfire on him. While there are unique elements of this story here in in Esther, it fits with a pattern that holds from the creation to the new creation. And that pattern is that God fights for His people, bringing judgment upon all those who stand against them. Now these these two chapters, chapters 6 and 7 that we look at this morning, these are among the most humorous and most dramatic in all of the Bible. And so it it is our privilege to stand now together and read them in their entirety. So please stand with me. As you're standing, you'll remember from chapter 5, that Haman has just been advised by his wife and friends to build a gallows for Mordecai. And he intends to go in the morning to persuade the king to hang Mordecai on that gallows. And then he plans to go joyfully to a second feast with the king and the queen. So we begin reading in Esther chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing's been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." And the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. 
And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault a queen in my presence? In my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. You may be seated. There is there's really one, one point in this text. I'm going to give it to you very slowly over the course of the message. Just a snippet at a time. And we'll begin with the subject, the subject of the main point, And that is one word, God. It begins with God. God is the star of this show. And again, the absence of any mention of God in the book of Ex- Esther is intentional. It is conspicuous. And it demonstrates that when it seems God is most absent and passive, He is never more present and active. He moves all the events of this narrative. You'll remember back to chapters 1 and 2. Before there was ever a danger, events were, were set in motion to put Esther and Mordecai in place as instruments of salvation. God's a- activities in Esther Nowhere more obvious than in these two chapters. They're filled with uncanny timing. Some people might like to call coincidences, but these, this collection of coincidences in such tight quarters just begs for an explanation in the existence and activity of a mighty and wise God. And I want to outline for you some of these coincidences and think through them together and see if it's even possible that they could be coincidences. There are four of them. 
The first of those is that on the very night before Haman intends to come to the king asking for Mordecai's execution, the king has insomnia. Verse 1 more literally reads, On that night, the sleep of the king fled. Of all the ways that one might deal with insomnia, the king just happened to choose to have the chronicles of the kingdom read to him. Now, for Pastor John, those of you who know Pastor John, reading any history book like that would have been riveting. He'd have been up all night enjoying every word of it. Most of the rest of us, for for us, that would have been like warm milk and our favorite blankie. I mean, we'd drop off just like that. And that likely is what Ahasuerus wanted. Put me to sleep. Read me the Chronicles. But it doesn't work. This is read to him all night long. And it is just before daybreak that, that, that he hears... He hears this story. And what is the story that he he hears? He hears an episode about Mordecai from five years earlier. Mordecai had saved Ahasuerus' life. Seven commentators, several commentators note that for a Persian king to overlook this kind of good deed at the time that it happens, highly unusual. Persian kings were all about self-preservation as were the kings of, of all kingdoms back then. But the Persian kings, they, they were on it. They, were, they, they would have rewarded this handsomely and immediately. That Mordecai was overlooked at the time, that's amazing. That his act was noticed the night before Haman was going to ask for his execution. That is more than amazing. That is crazy timing if you believe in coincidences. A second, a second example. Who is it that arrives at the court just as the king learns about this unrewarded good deed and is seeking a suggestion about what should be done for Mordecai? Who just happens to walk into the court at that moment? Well, it's Haman. And it seems that the king would have taken a suggestion from anybody who walked into the court. He just asks, who's in the court? He doesn't, he doesn't say, where's Haman? I've got to hear from Haman. So, who's in the court? It just happens to be Haman that comes in. Haman who hates Mordecai with a royal passion. Crazy timing if you believe in coincidences. A third example. At the end of chapter 6, the eunuchs come to bring Haman to the feast just as Haman's friends are predicting his doom. The text says, while they were yet talking with him. While while they're saying, you will surely fall before Mordecai. They're saying those words as the eunuchs are arriving to take him to that fall. Crazy timing, if you believe in coincidences. Fourth example. When Haman's pleading for his life from Esther, When the king king has left the room, he's pleading for his life from Esther. The king returns at the precise moment that Haman is falling on her couch, allowing the king to surmise he's attacking her, adding insult to injury. Crazy timing if you believe in coincidences. Now, when you add all of those coincidences together and you see that every one of them goes against Haman, well, that's like rolling snake eyes a hundred times in a row. This is no coincidence. All of this is is by the design of a great creator. Divine intelligence and power is moving all of this. Yahweh chased sleep from the king. 
And Yahweh made it the case that Mordecai, Mordecai was overlooked those five years earlier. Yahweh saw to it that Haman was the one who arrived at the court just as the king sought a suggestion regarding how Mordecai should be honored. Yahweh made it the case that the eunuchs arrived to, to, to take Haman to his doom even as his friends were predicting it. And Yahweh made it the case. He moved the heart of the king like a channel of water to enter that room just as Haman was falling on Esther's couch. No coincidences. God is acting. God is the star of the show. Now, if God is the star, then we would have to say that, that Haman is the co-star. And we could, we could title these two chapters, God at Work, Haman and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. This awful, awful day for Haman. This whole episode is intended to be seen, to be felt, to be experienced from Haman's point of view. You know, th- th- these two chapters are not so much about God's saving, saving His people as they are God's judging His enemies. And we get an up-close and personal glimpse of it through the eyes of the chief enemy in the story, which is Haman. Haman is receiving his due for having set himself against God and God's people. So the whole thing, the whole thing begins with God. God is behind all of it. So God is the subject of our main, our main point here. God, the next part of our main point is turns back his enemy's devices. God turns back his enemy's devices. He turns back his enemy's devices. Now let's just think through some of the enemy's devices that we have We've seen in the book of Esther thus far. We, we noted back in chapter 3, they started before Haman was even born. Do you remember this? Haman is an Agagite. And Agag was the king of, of the Amalekites, the ancient enemies of the Jew, going all, Jews, going all the way back to the Exodus. So they've been a thorn in the sides of, of Israel all the way back there and continuing to the time of Saul. And now a descendant of Agag, Haman carries on the legacy. We might think of Haman as the quintessential Amalekite. Everything that Agag aspired to be. He, he hated the Jews so well and so successfully that he has connived to the point where all of them, every Jew on the planet has been sentenced to death. When Mordecai refused to bow down to him, Haman wasn't content to punish only Mordecai. So thorough was his hatred of God's people that he sought the annihilation of all the Jews. And so you'll remember, he he persuaded the king to decree death for all of them. Without mentioning to the king the word Jews or the name Mordecai, remember he he just went to the king and said, well, there's there's this certain people and it's it's not to your profit to tolerate them. And Ahasuerus, the pliable, remember, he's like, okay, just do what you want. And so Haman wrote that decree, and Haman sent it out for the Jews to be killed on the 13th day of the 12th month. And even though the Jews were sentenced to die on that day, the 13th day of the 12th month, that wasn't quick enough for Haman on Mordecai, in Mordecai's case. So adding to the devices of Haman against God's people, we saw last week in chapter 5 that at the suggestion of his wife and friends, Haman constructed a gallows 50 cubits high on which to have Mordecai hanged. Now, we don't, we don't use the word cubit very often. It's kind of like a fortnight. A cubit is 18 inches, and so 50 cubits is 
75 feet. That's high. Now, gallows isn't really the best word to use here. Neither is the word hanged. Because when we, when we hear hanged and gallows, we're picturing a noose around somebody's neck. But that was not the Persian way. The, the, the literal word here is tree. And so we might think of, of a pole. And instead of hanged, we should think impaled. The Persians impaled people. So that, that's what Haman has in mind for Mordecai. Now, God is going to use all of these devices against Haman. John Calvin wrote that man falls according as God's providence ordains, but he falls by his own fault. And that's what we find here in these two chapters. Everything that Haman has done comes back to haunt him. So the next part of our main point is on their own Heads, God turns back His enemies' devices on their own heads. He turns back His enemies' devices on their own heads. If you are a literature lover, there are numerous levels on which to, to appreciate the book of Esther. The story itself is, is wonderful, especially these chapters are just grand. But the structure is brilliant. The, the, the major theme of the book, is, as we've noted in past weeks, is reversal. And we we get that most clearly from chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1 reads this way, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So the the story itself is about reversal. But the story is structured. The the, the structure of the story itself is is a reversal. It's built on a literary device that some of you may be familiar with. It's called a chiasm. And a, a chiasm is a literary device where there are parallel or mirror elements in a story, but the second of each of those parallels comes in reverse order. So... So you'll have event A, event B, event C. There's going to be a mirror element of each of those. So so you'll have another event A, event B, event C, except they're going to come in reverse order. So as you read the story, you'll have event A, event B, event C, event C, event B, event A. So that the first event parallels the last, and the second event parallels the second to the last. And you follow them toward the middle where you'll, you'll see a kind of hinge or a, a turning point. That's how Esther is written. So let me give you some examples of those parallels, and we'll follow it toward the middle and see where the hinge is. Okay? The book begins with two feasts, you may remember. So Ahasuerus gave a feast, and Vashti gave a feast. The book ends with two feasts. There's the first day of Purim and the second day of Purim. The king gives Haman his ring, The king gives Mordecai his ring. Haman's decree is publicly declared as law, dooming the Jews. Mordecai's decree is declared law, giving the Jews the ability to defend themselves. Susa is bewildered. The city of Susa is bewildered. The city of Susa rejoices. Mordecai wears sackcloth. Mordecai wears royal robes. Mordecai goes through the city crying. Mordecai goes through the city honored. Zeresh advises Mordecai's death. Zeresh predicts 
Haman's death. So we, we follow these events in. And there's others that, 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 that we could point out. Those are just a few. But if you follow them into the middle of the story, what's the turning point? What's the hinge? It's chapter 6, verse 1, where the king can't sleep. That's the beginning of the end. It's all downhill from there. From, from then on, it is mourning and death for God's enemies and rejoicing and salvation for His people. The whole book is a series of reversals. But just these two, these two chapters are a collection of reversals related to Haman, focusing on Haman. I want to give you a few examples of this as well because this, this really is what these two chapters are showing is a reversal of Haman's devices brought upon his own head. So let's think about that first scene in chapter 6 that we might think of as as Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. If we, we characterize that chapter in that way, we see that that itself is, is a reversal. But remember that Haman has turned the king against Mordecai back in chapter 3. Mordecai and the Jews without naming them. At the end of chapter 5, his full intention is to go into the king to cause Mordecai's fall and then go to the feast joyfully. But while Haman sleeps, God is working to elevate Mordecai in the king's eyes. So, Haman wants the king to condemn Mordecai. The king's heart is moved in the opposite direction before Haman ever gets there. Reversal. Then we find that the king asks, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman's pride moves him to assume the king has to be talking about him. And so he makes this grandiose suggestion. The king's robes, the king's crown, the king's horse... Now, experts on ancient Persia, they would tell us that this suggestion that Haman makes is outrageous. This is an outrageous suggestion. He essentially is saying, this man whom you delight to honor should share your royalty. But God has so moved the king to to reward Mordecai, albeit in the the interest of self-preservation, he has moved the king to do this, and so he assents. Now, Haman is constructing this honor for himself. God is moving the king to give it to Mordecai. Reversal. Moreover, in Haman's suggestion, remember how he suggested that this whole thing would actually be implemented. He said, let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city. Well, Haman is the number two in Persia. By by definition, he is the most noble of all the king's officials. So, not only is is this honor that he desires for himself going to go to Mordecai, but by his own suggestion, he's going to be the one who implements it. You know, he he was there to execute Mordecai, but instead he's, he's the very one who's going to exalt Mordecai. Remember earlier in the story, he's incensed that Mordecai will not pay homage to him. Now he's going to pay homage to Mordecai. Haman humiliated, Mordecai exalted, reversal. At the end of chapter 5, you'll remember that Haman gathered his wife and friends to tell them about his many honors. At the end of chapter 6, he gathers those same people to tell them about his great humiliation. At the end of chapter 5, they suggested Mordecai's execution. At the end of chapter 6, they predict Haman's reversal. Then there's the next scene. We move into chapter 7. They, get, they all go to the feast. 
The day before, Haman expected he was going to be coming to this feast in great joy, having put Haman to death. Now he's coming to this feast in great shame, having exalted Mordecai. A reversal. Previously, Haman had the king's ear. He had the king's ear. The king would do whatever he wanted. Now a Jewish woman has the king's ear, and he's offering to do anything that she says. Reversal. Whereas Haman sought the death of the Jews to Haman's benefit, now Esther pleads for the life of the Jews to Haman's demise. If you look at 7.4, if you look at 7.4, the words that Esther uses, to be killed, to be annihilated, all all of that wording, she is using Haman's own wording that he wrote in that decree back in chapter 3. She's using his own words against him. Now, he recognizes those words. He wrote them. He's learning for the first time, Esther's a Jew. I have set up Esther to be killed. All of this is coming to him in that moment. So he hears Esther describing his selling her and the Jews into death. And he sees the king seething about this. You kind of miss this in in English, but the king is seething in chapter 5. In Hebrew, the narrative slows down and, and tension builds. Listen, this, this is a, a, a bit more literal translation of the text. And King Ahasuerus said, and he said to Esther, Who is he, this one? And where is he, this one, whose heart has filled him to do this? It slows down. You feel this, this tension building. And Haman knows the answer to that question. You know, he's just praying, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And she says it. This foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And so Haman, the enemy of the Jews and ally of the king, then becomes Haman, the enemy of the king. Reversal. The king is incensed, he leaves the room. Whereas Esther was pleading for her life from the king, now Haman pleads for his life from the queen. Reversal. The king returns. He returns and sees Haman falling on the couch. He's pleading for his own life, but the king believes him to be making an attempt on the queen's life. Another reversal. The gallows on which Haman intended for Mordecai to be hanged the very gallows on which the king now commands Haman to be hanged, a reversal. So, pri- so Haman's pride has led directly to his own humiliation. And his hatred for the Jews has led directly to his own demise. Even the mode of execution that he intended for Mordecai, he unwittingly built it for himself. All of it, all of it is just reversal after reversal after reversal. Part of this big story of Reversal for God's people. God turns back His enemies' devices on their own heads. Why does He do this? Well, that's the last part of our main point. He does it for the benefit of His people. For the benefit of His people. God turns back His enemies' devices on their own heads for the benefit of His people. Look with me back at chapter 6, verse 13. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, whom, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. If, if Mordecai is of the Jews, you're doomed. 
Now, what, what gives Zeresh that conviction? Is it possible that she's aware of this ancient tension between the Jews and the Amalekites? Is it possible that she knows that Yahweh promised way back in, in Exodus and, and afterwards to make war on Amalek forever? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. All we know is that she's right. She's right about this. Psalm 33.12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. To set oneself against the people of God is to set oneself against God Himself because Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God. So Haman hasn't just set himself against the Jews. Haman has set himself against the God of the Jews, Yahweh, and Yahweh always wins on behalf of His people. Always, always. Now that phrase that we see in the text there of the Jewish people is, is more literally seed of the Jews. If Mordecai is from the seed of the Jews. And that may remind us again of that first gospel promise in the Bible back in Genesis 3.15 where God said that He would put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman would prevail. You boil it all down. Boil this this story all down. That's what's really happening here. Whether Zeresh realized it or not, she's agreeing with Yahweh back in Genesis 3.15 The seed of the woman is going to win. The people of God will prevail over the people of the devil. This this, here in Esther, this is just another instance of God turning back evil on the heads of His enemies for the sake of His people, as He has always done and as He will continue to do until Jesus returns and does it one final time. We could give examples all day. We could give examples all day. Let me just give you a few examples of other times outside of Esther where God has done this. Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. What does Pharaoh want to do in Exodus chapter 1? He seeks to limit the number of the Israelites so as to keep them under control. But listen to Exodus 1.12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So that 14 chapters later, the entire Egyptian army is crushed under the weight of the Red Sea, and a massive throng of Israelites has walked out of Egypt as free people. Reversal. We could look at Judges chapter 7, where... Israel is oppressed by the Midianites and God has this tiny little army. He's whittled it down to 300 people and He equips them with torches, jars, and trumpets. And Yahweh causes the Midianites to literally turn their swords on one another so that the Midianites, they all kill themselves. 120,000 men. Reversal. We We could look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20 where three nations... Three nations come against Judah. Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Those three nations come against little Judah. What happens? God causes Ammon and Moab to turn against Mount Seir. They kill Mount Seir. Then He causes Ammon and Moab to turn on each other. And those two nations destroy each other. And the text says, there's bodies everywhere. But not a single man of Judah was touched. Reversal. Go to the New Testament. We find Saul, the most prolific persecutor of the church, transformed 
into the most prolific apostle and church planter in the church, reversal. Find the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem trying to silence the gospel through persecution. But what do they, do? What do they end up doing? By that very act, they cause the gospel to spread farther, faster. Reversal. The greatest example, though, of God's turning back His enemies' devices on their own heads for the good of His people, the greatest example was in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the singular seed of the Jews, the singular seed of the woman. We could think of the incarnation of Jesus Christ as the great reversal composed of many, many reversals. The great beauty of 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 this story in Esther, and the great poetry of it is that God uses Haman's own plan, Haman's own scheming, his own pride, even his own gallows against him. You know, it was Haman's will to prepare all these schemes. He wanted this. It was God's will too. God caused a reversal of everything that Haman intended. So also with the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember that on the night that Judas betrayed the Lord, Satan entered into Judas. Judas was possessed of the devil as he handed Jesus over to those in power. Now that in no way absolves Judas. He had already made up his mind. But the point is that the devil wanted Jesus to go to the cross. He wanted Jesus to die. The devil thought that the cross was going to be his great moment of victory and it was going to be God's great moment of defeat. But what the enemy intended for evil, God intended for good. And it's not just in all of this, God is not just making lemonade out of the lemons that our enemies hand Him. God has has spoken these things from eternity past. And we learned that in that passage that we looked at from Acts chapter 4 last week. Everything that happened to Jesus in His passion, God ordained from eternity past. Genesis 3.15, again, it foretold that the serpent would bruise the heel of of the woman's seed, and the woman's seed would, would bruise the head of the serpent. Well, the very instrument by which the devil sought to bruise Jesus' heel, the cross, was the instrument by which Jesus crushed the devil's head. And that, that very event that the devil hoped would turn people away from the Lord became and still is the event by which God calls all of His people to Himself. Reversal. Now, you and I, we, we, we should see in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and, and particularly in the cross, we should see our own personal reversal because what were we in our most natural state? We were sinners hating God, dead in our trespasses and sins. Do you remember the awfulness of that? Because of our sin against and enmity with God, we were rightfully doomed to eternal punishment. But God desired a reversal for us to to completely change our course eternally. The great question is, how is that possible? Because the Bible is very clear that God is a good and righteous judge. He doesn't just overlook sin. He is a good judge who brings every sin, every sinner to justice. So 
How, how, how could this be? How could sinners headed rightfully for hell away from His presence, how can they be forgiven and spend eternity with Him in the new heaven and earth? How is that possible? Well, it's accomplished again by a reversal. You remember again that, that in Esther, that word that, that we have translated gallows, that word more literally is tree. Well, in the book of Esther, we find an evil man hanging on a tree intended for a righteous man. An evil man hanging on a tree intended for a righteous man. Well, conversely, in the gospel, a righteous man hangs on a tree intended for evil men. We, we deserve to die on the cross. We deserve God's wrath for sin. And Jesus took our place. Our sin was punished in Him. His death gave us life. How how is that possible? How can death give life? Well, it gives life through another great reversal that we call the resurrection. You've probably noticed, those of you who have been on the earth any time at all, there's a typical life cycle of human beings, right? You're, you're born, you live, and you die. Has, has anybody noticed this? Feel free to raise your hands. You're born, you live, and then you die. Except for Jesus Christ. He is the great reversal. Jesus was born, He lived, He died, He lived again, and He gives the new birth to all who repent and trust in Him. is that fantastic? All those who repent and trust in Jesus Christ... They comprise the church, His eternal people. And it's on their behalf that He has defeated these enemies of sin and death and the devil using the very instrument of death prepared for His demise. That very instrument He has used to be the mechanism by which He gives us life. God turns the devices of His enemies on their own heads for the good of His people. So what? What, what should we do as we, as we leave this place other than worship? That's the obvious thing, right? Let me give you three things as we close here. Three things very quickly. First of all, going back to how we began this morning, is that, that echo that we find throughout Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Do not fear. Do not fear the enemy. Do not fear the enemy. Now, that, is, that does not mean don't respect the enemy. It does not mean underestimate the enemy. Because the New Testament teaches that the enemy and those who work for him, they are real. They should not be underestimated. They should not be disrespected. They should be an object of our watchfulness. But they should not be an object of fear for us. We should not fear the enemies of the world. There is nothing that the world can do to, to stop the forward movement of the gospel and the growth of the church of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is committed to His bride. You know, just as Haman made himself an enemy of God when he turned on the Jews, all those who make themselves an enemy of the church of Jesus Christ make themselves an enemy of Jesus Christ Himself. You know, when Jesus was confronting Saul in Acts chapter 9, what did He say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Is that what he said? No, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus has joined Himself to us. 
He's joined us to Him. So anything that happens to us, Jesus takes it as a personal offense. And Revelation teaches, therefore, that He will bring justice upon those who come against His bride. So do not fear the enemy. Do not fear the enemy. One last reversal is coming when He comes again. So do not fear the enemy. Second, fear God. Fear God. And, and many people misunderstand that to mean be afraid of God. There's a, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what, what it means to fear God. I want to suggest a resource to you that has, has recently come out by Michael Reeves. It's a book called Rejoice and Tremble. Rejoice and Tremble. The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. Rejoice and Tremble. The surprising good news of the fear of the Lord. If you've ever heard Michael Reeves, you probably just, you get excited already. Because to hear Michael Reeves talk about the fear of the Lord, that just sounds like a party to me, honestly. Just knowing who Michael Reeves is. I've read this book. It is fantastic. It, it, will, it will make you yearn for God, not want to run from God. It is a fantastic treatment of this biblical phrase, Fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? The fear of the Lord is a delightful, joyful thing. You think about this picture of God in Esther. Yes, His enemies should be afraid of Him. His people should stand in loving awe of Him, drawn to His magnificence. This God who, who choreographs wisely and powerfully and lovingly every single detail in all of existence for their good and His glory. We should be drawn in loving awe to Him. We should fear Him. So, do not fear the enemy. Fear God. Third, love the Son. Love the Son. Spend hours in the Scriptures, hours in the Gospels, thinking through the things that Jesus did, the things that He went through to make us His own, to cause this great reversal. I was talking with a brother just yesterday about these latter chapters of Mark and how obvious it is that Jesus was determined to go to the cross. Jesus knew the things were coming out of His mouth were going to send Him to the cross and He said them anyway because He loves His people. He was determined to go to the cross. Love the Son. He is our great reversal. Were it not for the sacrifice of the Son, none of the good gifts of the Father would come to us. None of them. For they come to us in and through the loving, serving, rescuing hands of the Son. Do not fear the enemy. Fear God. Love the Son. Let us walk in faithfulness in these things. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and what, what a tremendous understatement to call you a mighty God, a loving Father. We are in awe of you. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would grant us hearts just determined to continue plumbing the depths 
of your character and love for us in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that the the truth that we have seen this morning would, would work its way deep into our minds, that it would govern our thoughts as we walk through our daily lives, that as the enemy would tempt us to fear him, we would not do that, but rather we would fear you, knowing that that, that you are a God who is in control of all things, that you turn the devices of the enemy back on his own head for our good. For that reason, help us not to fear the enemy, but fear you. And, and Lord, please turn our hearts and minds toward the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom this great reversal has taken place for us. Pray that you would, you would move us to love him more and more every day, Father. Our lives would not be characterized characterized by ungodly fear, but by filial fear and love for you and your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.